Chapter 9. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The March on Quebec and the Evacuation of Boston. While Washington was trying to get his army into form about Boston, other events, and of a very stirring kind, were occurring not far away. General Philip Schuyler was now in command of the division along Lake Champlain, where, as we have already learned, Benedict Arnold had gone to capture Fort Ticonderoga, but had been compelled to yield the leadership of the expedition to Ethan Allen. Although he had only a few followers, Arnold succeeded in taking the few British boats on the lake, but he did not enjoy holding a position inferior to that of Allen, and at last became so angry that he wrote a savage letter resigning the position to which the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts had elected him, and then returned to Cambridge with many complaints about his ill usage. Benedict Arnold was a very brave man, one who never asked his men to do what he was not willing to do himself, and when action was required, his boldness was as magnetic as his example. He was, however, of a very jealous disposition, and quick to sulk whenever he fancied that he had been slighted or ignored. Washington fully appreciated the man, and was quick to use him, and perhaps, if his words had been followed, we never should have heard of Arnold the traitor. But this does not in the least excuse Arnold for his treachery, though he was very unjustly treated. But it may in part explain the causes that led to his overthrow at last. At this time Arnold, and indeed many other men as well, were very strongly in favor of invading Canada. He had already written Congress suggesting a plan by which he confidently believed that 2,000 men might easily win all of that country. He declared that Carleton, the governor of Canada, had only 550 men under him who were of any account, and that word had already been received that the gates of Montreal would be thrown open to the Americans the moment that a strong force of Continentals appeared before the town. He wanted very much to lead the expedition himself, and declared that he was willing to assume all responsibility of the proposed movement. Congress, however, as we know, was timid. The body had no clearly defined power. Many of its members were strongly opposed to doing anything more than was absolutely necessary to protect themselves, and still fondly believed that the King and Parliament would listen to their pleas. Ethan Allen had also made a similar proposal, and he later visited Philadelphia himself, though his chief object seems to have been to secure pay for the soldiers who had been with him at Ticonderoga, and to get permission to raise a new regiment. It is said that Allen and his companions appeared in person before Congress, and orally made known their wants. And so strong was the impression made by the rough soldiers that the desired permission to raise the new force of Green Mountain Boys was obtained, and the enthusiastic men hastened back to join Schuyler and Montgomery, who were in command at Ticonderoga and Crown Point. The fear that the British in Canada would strive to retake Ticonderoga, together with several other strong reasons, at last led to the decision to send an expedition to Canada, and in September 1775 the forces of Schuyler and Montgomery appeared before St. John's at the Sorrel. The fort was more strongly garrisoned than they had thought, so instead of trying to assault it, Schuyler hastened back to Ticonderoga for reinforcements. The reinforcements were speedily sent, 
but Schuyler himself was taken ill and could not return, and so the command was left to Montgomery, who proved himself to be more than equal to the occasion, for after a siege of fifty days he captured Fort Chambly and Fort St. John's, and then pushing on soon afterward, on November 12th, 1775, entered Montreal in triumph. Without delaying long at Montreal, the young leader started on for Quebec, where he was to lay down his life as gloriously as Wolfe had done a few years before this time. It is to be feared that even the Americans in later years have almost forgotten this brave hero in the common glory which has been ascribed by England and America alike to Wolfe. But common justice demands that the one should not receive less praise as the other has received his great and merited honor. As Montgomery had served under Wolfe, perhaps he had learned his lessons from that great leader. At all events, he had proved himself to be a worthy pupil. Meanwhile, Colonel Benedict Arnold was to have the fondest desire of his heart gratified, for Washington had detached a thousand of the New England infantry and Morgan's riflemen, and also two companies of the Pennsylvania men, and placing them under the command of Arnold, ordered them to start for Quebec. The winter would soon be coming on. The advance was to be by the Kennebec and Chaudière rivers, and through an unbroken wilderness. But this seems to have been the very thing that Arnold most enjoyed. When his men were rowing against the swift currents of the rivers, or pushing or crawling through the thick underbrush, or wading through the half-frozen swamps, it was his example and presence that cheered his followers on. Their clothing torn, their shoes worn out, their supplies gone, and the game of the forest by no means plentiful, Slight cause for wonder is it that many of the men became ill and died on the way, and that before the fearful march of thirty-three days had been completed, two hundred had perished, and as many more had turned back toward Cambridge, carrying with them others who were sick or helpless. It is said that the wives of some of the men accompanied their husbands on this terrible march through the wilderness, and that they endured the hardships even better than the men did. This was not to be the only time, however, when the determined American women were to share the hardships of the camps and armies, and lend the inspiration of their presence to the struggling soldiers of the colonies. At last the march was completed, and as bravely as if he had all of Washington's army at his back, Arnold with his little force of seven hundred men crossed the St. Lawrence, climbed the heights of Abraham, and as boldly as Ethan Allen had demanded of the astounded commander the surrender of Ticonderoga, called upon the garrison to come out and fight, or else surrender the town. Very wisely, the garrison refused to do either, for why should they? They were comfortable, well protected, and had everything to lose and nothing to gain by leaving the forts, just the reverse of the conditions which Arnold and his men would be compelled to face. And it was more than likely that the cold of the winter would be sufficient of itself to conquer the intrepid Americans if he should be so reckless as to remain. So Arnold had to try to be patient and wait for the arrival of Montgomery but doubtless the delay had much to do with the reckless attempt to storm the town that soon afterward was made. For whatever else he might do, Benedict Arnold did not know how to wait. That test of great man he always failed to meet. General Carleton, a few days afterwards, managed to slip into Quebec all unbeknown to the Americans, and on December 3rd Montgomery and his little band, which swelled the numbers of the besiegers to 1,200, joined Arnold. Again and again they demanded of Carleton that he should come forth and fight, but the British general was too shrewd to be tempted by the taunts of his enemies to leave the shelter of the forts, and at last Arnold and Montgomery decided to storm the place, all of which, quote, was magnificent, 
but it was not war, unquote. And their plan almost succeeded, though then, as now, almost, is but to fail. It was two o'clock in the morning of the last day of 1775. It was bitterly cold, and the driving snow almost prevented every soldier from seeing a yard before him. On one side of the town, Montgomery and his men advanced, and on the other moved Arnold and his forces. Strange as it may seem, Montgomery, aided by the surprise and the storm, almost gained his side of the town. Steadily, doggedly, he moved forward, and just at the moment when it seemed as if success was to be his, the intrepid young general fell dead with three bullets in his body. His followers, staggered by the loss, hesitated, stopped their advance for the moment, and then, as the approaching reinforcements of the garrison at that moment were seen, the soldiers, without a leader, and not knowing what to do, fell back. Had they held the ground they had won, Quebec would have fallen, for Arnold was fighting with desperate zeal on the other side of the town. His sword was the sword of ten. His voice, his arm, his zeal, all appealed to the men beside him. Stubbornly, bravely, recklessly, they all fought on. Arnold fell to the ground terribly wounded, and was carried from the field, but still the fight went on. Daniel Morgan and his riflemen rushed to the front at the fall of Arnold. They stormed the battery. They even made their way into the town, but neither Montgomery nor his men were there to meet him, and soon cut off from support, the Virginia men were prisoners, and Quebec was still held by the British. Though driven back, Benedict Arnold still did not give up, for he did not know how. He had lost the aid of Montgomery, and now had less than one thousand men with him, but moving to a place about three miles distant from the town he dug entrenchments and prepared his camp hoping to be able to prevent supplies from being carried into Quebec, and thereby bring the garrison to terms. The British General Carleton, who was well aware that just as soon as spring came and the ice had gone out of the St. Lawrence, reinforcements would be sent to him, simply did nothing but wait, and so displayed the very best of generalship. How the terrible winter was endured, with the cold, hunger, and smallpox accomplishing far more destruction among his men than the bullets of the enemy had been able to effect, only Arnold himself could have told. It was true that his force had been increasing by the coming of other men until it numbered 3,000, but with 800 of these ill with the smallpox, it was not a force which Carleton naturally stood in any great fear. April 1st, General Wooster came from Montreal, and as he was superior in rank to Arnold, he assumed the command of the besieging force. It was warmer now, and the men were able to work, so batteries were erected and the cannon were brought to bear upon the town though no damage was done. It was at this time that Arnold's horse one day slipped and fell upon the general's leg, which had been so terribly wounded in the attack on the town. This latest incident rendered Arnold unfit for service, and so he obtained permission to leave for Montreal. As he did not love Wooster any more than he had loved Ethan Allen, the permission was granted without any very great regret on either side, and Arnold withdrew to Montreal. In May, General Thomas came, but as Carleton at the time also received large reinforcements, the Americans were forced to beat so hasty a retreat that they were even compelled to leave much of their stores and many of their sick behind them. It is a pleasure to record that the latter were kindly treated and afterward were sent to their homes. At the Sorrel, after having received reinforcements, General Thomas tried to halt and prepare to meet the British, but smallpox seized upon him and soon carried him away. His death left the sterling General Sullivan, of whom we shall hear much later, in command, but not even he was able to withstand the advancing forces of Burgoyne, 
and soon all the American army had returned to their own country, and the invasion of Canada was at an end. Before this had come to pass, however, Washington had succeeded in driving the British out of Boston. On the 4th of March, deceiving the British by heavy fire from other directions, he had sent 2,000 men to Dorchester Heights, and at the dawn of the following morning the Redcoats were astonished to behold the great guns in place on the heights above them. The Admiral bluntly declared that unless those entrenchments were taken, his fleet would be withdrawn, for he did not care to expose his vessels to the fire which he knew would not be vain. Lord Percy was at last bidden to take 3,000 men and advance to storm the place held by the Americans. But it is one thing to say what ought to be done, and quite a different one to do it. The Redcoats had not forgotten Bunker Hill, and as a hard storm just then swept over the region, it afforded an excellent pretext for delay. On the following day, when the storm had passed, it was discovered that the hardy Americans had not stopped for the rain, and their fortifications were now too strong to be attacked, and nothing was left for the British to do but to evacuate Boston. Threatening to burn the town if his troops were fired upon, Washington wisely, but greatly to the disgust of some of his men, agreed that his guns would be silent during the departure. The 8,000 British troops embarked on the fleet and sailed away for Halifax. And from that day, March 17, 1776, until this, many men have been accustomed when in anger to bid their enemies depart for the same destination. The British had left powder, cannon, and stores behind them when they departed, and the needy American troops were almost as rejoiced to gain these supplies as they were over the departure of the Redcoats. End of chapter 9